Hello friends and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your supervisors and managers, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Boss. In this 13-month program, I'll be taking your managers through our driving results curriculum, and that includes topics on communication, performance management, motivation, delegation, problem-solving, decision-making, team development, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoints, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You'll either have your entire organization go through it, or if you have just a few folks, you can put them into one of our open enrollment cohorts that we start every other month. For more information, just visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. We're going to talk today on this episode about veterans, not veterinarians. We've had an episode on that before, but veterans. And my guest today is Dwayne France. Now, Dwayne France is a retired Army soldier. He is now a mental health professional. He works primarily with veterans who have transitioned out of military service. We wanted to spend some time talking about that aspect of his background. We also spent some time talking about his military career, and then we went into detail on what it's like for a veteran to transition from civilian to military, and then from military back to civilian. Some of the challenges, some of the mental health challenges, some of those challenges about who am I now that I'm gone, and how does that impact you, the HR professional, as you are looking to bring in veterans into your workforce. So lots and lots of great information on this one. Be sure to take a lot of notes. And if you have questions, I want you to reach out directly to Dwayne. He's offered himself up for that, and he's got plenty of great information. Great guy, a lot of fun. So let's quit talking about the man. Let's talk to him. Time for us to buckle that seatbelt, put the personal item under the seat in front of you. We're about to take off. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Dwayne France, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mac. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm glad we could connect. I found you on LinkedIn, and uh, you are somebody who deals with a subject that is near and dear to my heart, your heart, and all of us veterans right now, and that is life as veterans experience it. And there's so many different nuances we're going to be talking about. But before we get into those, Dwayne, I was hoping you could share something about your background with us. Tell us where you came from and now what you're doing these days. Yeah, it's always interesting. Everybody loves an origin story, right? Uh, so uh, I served in the Army for 22 years. Uh, so I was in uh, logistics when I was in the military. Uh, joined uh, right out of high school in 1992. Uh, so my military career really split between pre-9-11 and then post-9-11. Um, served in uh, some pretty great units, uh, had uh, two tours overseas in Germany, uh, had the honor of serving in the 82nd Airborne Division, um, uh, maybe less of an honor to serve a, a tour on career, uh, recruiting duty, but uh, it was still there. 
Uh, and then uh, my family and I got here to Fort Carson in 2006. Of course, the family stayed here. I did the Grand World Tour of one Iraq, two Afghanistan tours, um, a tour with North Africa with 10 Special Forces Group at the end of my career, uh, and a tour uh, in, in Bosnia way back in the middle of the last, uh, last decade in the 90s. Um, and, and so um, as my military career was sort of winding down, I, I found that uh, what I wanted to be when I grew up um, was uh, work in clinical mental health with service members and veterans. Um, and so completing my educational journey, probably over the last quarter of my career, um, got a degree in clinical mental health counseling, um, now work as a mental health counselor for uh, service members, veterans, and their families here in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, but also do a lot of community and government liaison work, um, advocacy work, uh, trying to change the way that we think and talk about mental health, working with lawmakers to um, conduct um, legislation and policy changes related to mental health and wellness, and especially, of course, as many of us in the field over the last several years have worked in suicide prevention. So um, really carried on taking care of the troops from my military career now in my post-military life. That's great. Well, I'm intrigued. So you, because you split the, the maybe the biggest defining event for many of our lives, which was 9-11. You were in the army before. 9-11 hits. We go on pretty heavy war footing because you would have come in right after desert storm then mm -hmm. yep so i was in before desert storm so desert storm was like the pinnacle for me i was out before 9 11 and it's like that's when i realized oh my god we joined the military to go to war nobody told me this and then it happened and then it was like the normal thing so what do you remember that was different prior to 9 11 than what happened after was it a different experience for you and your peers uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, definitely, um, you know, and, and think about the mid 90s, uh, sort of like the, the the Cold War era in the 80s, sort of post Gulf War. Uh, there were deployments, there were smaller deployments. Bosnia, obviously, was the biggest one that that stretched throughout there, uh, where I was engaged in the first, but it wasn't really combat, that was peacekeeping. Uh, Somalia, again, a peacekeeping deployment. And so, um, you know, the majority, it was a, a peacetime army, there was a lot of training, uh, but there was also a lot of predictability, perhaps. Um, and then I was actually in Germany on post nine or on nine eleven uh, when it occurred. Um, and so this is for me, uh, my memories of nine eleven occur in the afternoon, uh, while mm -hmm. for many people it occurred in the morning. Uh, so it was I think two or three in the afternoon, uh, and we were listening to it on the radio. Two thousand one, our company area, we didn't have TVs. Nobody, you know, sort of gathered around and things like that. Um, and then very quickly things changed. Um, one thing I do remember pre 9-11, uh, the bases were open. You could drive through. You could, you know, especially stateside. But I think even in Germany, uh, in many ways, you, you know, people could just come on base. There were no gate guards. There was no restriction. Um, and then, of course, that changed rapidly. Like, you know, Fort Bragg, there was a highway that drove right into the middle of, of the base. Um, and so uh, definitely sort of a military life changed. I think that um, it very much became an on-base and off-base experience. I always describe it as, um, while I was in the military, my back was to the fence. I like off-post was someplace I went to go sleep and maybe watch a movie or something, right? It, it, all the life was really contained on the military installation. Um, and then, of course, um, rapidly after 9-11, uh, we became a rapidly deploying force. When I deployed to Afghanistan, 2009, 2010, uh, I was a platoon sergeant of um, probably about a 70 or 80 person platoon, uh, and only two people in that platoon were in the Army before 9-11. Uh, 
So not my, my platoon leader, um, none of my section sergeants, like one NCO, one E5, who had been in in the mid-90s, got out and came back in. Only two of us had, had been in the, the military before 9-11. Um, and so it was really a different mindset shift um, in this rapidly deploying um, sort of uh, constant movement time. Uh, really between 2004. Um, and, and even though now, yes, we are drawing down Afghanistan, but I think really things started to slow down around 12 or 13 or 14. Um, it's, but that 10-year period between, or 12-year period, say between 2001 and 2014, um, it was really a constant churn that wasn't there before 9-11. So in your experience then, I guess before 9-11 and all the deployments and all of the combat that happened over in Iraq and Afghanistan, were you seeing that people were leaving the military with some issues that had to be dealt with? I mean, was it prevalent before from what you could see compared to what it was after when we were actually a pretty active military in terms of like legit combat? You know, I, I think that's a good question. Um, and in reflecting on it, um, the military is an inherently dangerous occupation, right? I mean, it is something that, um, you know, the stressors are there whether you're in combat or not. Um, and so, yes, I mean, exposure to danger was there. I mean, vehicle accidents and, and, and just, you know, catastrophic events were there. Um, obviously, substance use has been rampant, you know, it, it, drinking culture and things like that. Um, but I even recall if, if we consider the timeline, when I joined in 1992, there were still Vietnam veterans in my formation, right? So we're 20 years away from 72. So, you know, um, individuals who had served the the senior and not even senior leaders, but but those who served sort of in the Vietnam area in, in 71, 72, 73, that was right at the end of their military career. Um, and so somebody who had served in Vietnam could have still been in the army. And, all, and, and this is one of the things people don't really consider is the senior leaders in the military in 2001 were Vietnam era veterans. Um, Peter Pace, for example, commandant of the Marine Corps was a platoon commander in Vietnam. And so really the Vietnam generation stretched into um, the, the early days of the, the post 9-11 generation. Um, and of course, these were two war combat vets. They had served in Vietnam, excuse me, they'd served in Vietnam and then they had um, uh, served in the Gulf War, for example, because it was really only 18 or so years later. So um, I think that, yes, there were always those things there, um, but it wasn't necessarily as prevalent, right? You know, you have somebody that joined the military in 93, did four or five years, got out and went on with their life and, and you know, didn't do anything more like the, um, the, the most action they saw was the bar downtown, right? You know, that was um, in, and so there are some things like that. Um, but again, you had situations like Bosnia, um, which was very much uh, the Europe-based um, uh, units, but like Bosnia and especially Somalia was one that has had had uh, some, some very consistent recurrent themes. Um, and so I, I think there were some things there. Obviously, the, the widespread and multi-tour uh, exposure to combat was much later. Um, but yeah, I think that there were some things, um, again, <laughs> The military is an inter inherently dangerous and challenging job, and that induces stress, and stress can create problems. Yeah, it's really funny. I, I can think before uh, Desert Storm, you know, I was a dental tech in the Navy, and so 
you know, when, when Desert Storm hit right away, you know, of course, all of the corpsmen at the hospital, I was stationed at Naval Hospital Long Beach. I mean, it was almost like overnight, they were gone. And so then the reserves came to backfill. And it was, the, I mean, it was funny, but it was sad. I mean, we had dentists and doctors that were all upset saying, you know, my, I'm going to lose my practice now. I can't believe I have to come on active duty. And I thought, well, I think that's what the reserves are supposed to do, you know, is to, you know, come. So I think there was honestly a mindset before the Gulf War that the military is this thing that you do to go, you know, make a little extra money sure. and you know, get your college degree. And then suddenly we're at war. And it's, you know, it's kind of ironic. There's that guy from the Naval Academy that just got drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And, you know, he, they finally going to let him play football. But I'm not sure that a lot of folks that go to those service academies like really know, look, I may go play sports over here and have a great time and, you know, be a shoe in for general or for uh, admiral at some point. But in between now and there, there's a war. And I spoke at some uh, service academy events and, you know, there's young women missing limbs that are academy grads that yep. ended up getting maimed. So I, it seems like the whole mindset has had to change because military now is very different than the early days when I was in, where it was just an extra job. You just wore a uniform and did your thing and went home. Now, I think that's entirely accurate, right? You know, there's a number of reasons why people decide to enlist in the military, um, you know, occupationally, right? I don't really have any any jobs available in, in my community. It's a way out of my community. Um, money for college, right? That was the big thing, especially in the 80s and then again in the mid-90s. That's what got me in. I thought what I wanted to do was uh, to get them to pay for college. What I realized, what I really enjoyed was excitement, adventure, and really wild things. So when people join the military, they think they're joining for one reason. It took me 15 years to get to college <laughs> after joining um, it, but, but I realized what, but that's another reason perhaps why people wanted to join. Um, I think after 9-11, um, really that desire to serve, that patriotism. I was a recruiter um, in the early days of, of Iraq and Afghanistan. So from 2003 to 2005, um, I was actually an army recruiter. Um, so we were in Afghanistan and I was in, um, I was in recruiting duty whenever Iraq kicked off. So um, the question of, is it a possibility that I'm going to go to war? Well, it was answered, right? So yes, that's a <laughs> mindset that they were already prepared for. Um, when they went in, whereas uh, when I was in, when I joined, you know, the nation wasn't at war. We had just come out of the war. We had just, you know, won and so on. Um, and so it really wasn't a consideration. You always knew of it as a second or third or fourth possibility. But yes, after 9-11, um, it was definitely a possibility. I mean, and, and what's really interesting is talking to um, uh, uh, service academy graduates, um, the year of, of 2001. So they, they graduated from the service Academy thinking that they're going to be in this peacetime army, right? So that June, four months later, all of a sudden they're on wartime footing. They're the ones that really had to shift their thinking. Same thing with people who enlisted right before and after nine 11. It's really interesting talking to them because it requires a mindset shift to say, no longer is this just a possibility. It's a probability and a likelihood that we're actually going to go to war. Well, Dwayne, you've used the word mindset a number of times, and I think that's a crucial one because in a way I think of a mindset as sort of like your internal culture that you have to shape. So where does the military mindset come from? Is it something that you learn in basic training? Is it from your peers? How, what is the indoctrination for a military mindset? 
well, I think uh, George Washington and von Steuben back in 1776, right? I mean, this is in, in really the military culture. If, if we think about service in the military, um, it's generations of, of history and experience. Again, um, uh, the West Point, they call it the Long Gray Line or, or the Naval Academy. Rich, rich, like, you know, multi-generational history. So that's one of the things is that um, you know, someone going into the military is engaging in a separate culture with a long history um, of, of good and bad things, right? And so I think a lot of it, the military culture starts with the weight of the history um, and, and sort of, uh, you know, how things are passed on from generation to generation. Uh, but of course, the military has a way of indoctrinating their their new members into a new culture and that's you know basic military training boot camp or basic training or whatever you call it um and each of the unit each of the services have their own culture their own subculture so um you know i don't think you'll have an air force an airman who will argue that uh, airman basic training is harder than marine corps ba- boot camp right <laughs> um and so but but each each service has a method of indoctrination and that indoctrination is the the older members of the culture, the drill sergeants and the leaders there pass on the understanding, the mindset, right? You know, the, the, you know, standing and keeping your mouth shut and standing in different formations and things like that. Um, but also it's, it's a, a way to be right. It's, it's the military does a very good job at changing the way that we see, think, and feel, um, standing at parade rest, uh, you know, yes, sergeant, no sergeant, saluting all of the drill and ceremonies. Um, but it's so constant, you're constantly immersed in this culture so that when you come out of that basic military training, you are a different person than when you, w- than you were when you went in, not just because of physically and, and because you, you became stronger or faster, what have you, but because you're starting to think differently, your mindset has changed. And then you go to your unit uh, and your your first military um, uh, organization, um, and that culturalization is reinforced over and over and over again. Um, and and then of course you you take it you know through twenty two years. The way I describe it, it's it's almost as if I went to go live in Ireland for twenty two years. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it, they speak the same language, um, but now I have to come back here to Colorado. Um, I speak both expletive and acronym fluently, right? Um, The military is a different culture. We have a different way of thinking. We have a different way of of acting. We have a different way of dressing, you know, the the uniform thing. Um, And so changing from pre-military culture to military culture is an indoctrination and an immersion into a different culture that's this longstanding multiple centuries uh, of uh, of history. and then we have to transition from that culture to a totally different culture that we're not familiar with, um, the, the, the post-military life. Veterans, I, I always describe it, um, veterans are no longer, they'll never be a civilian, right? You'll never be a civilian, I'll never be a civilian, um, because we come from that culture. Just if someone came from a, a foreign culture or take somebody from the city and move them to the country, right? There, there's this cultural gap. Um, but we're also not service members anymore. So we're this weird third thing, which is a combination of a service member and a civilian called a veteran, um, which if there's adjustment on the veterans part, it can be a little choppy, but ultimately doable. But sometimes veterans don't make that transition. Well, it's ironic when you think about it. I mean, so I was in largely peacetime. I did 15 years. I did the 15 year Terra early retirement. 
So 84 to 99. And aside from the little blip of, you know, Desert Storm, basically I, I was a peacetime guy, right? My two sea tours were done overseas, Australia and Guam. Uh, both places spoke English, wasn't a huge culture shock. So, and I honestly had one foot out the door pretty much from the day I got off the bus at boot camp. So for me, becoming a civilian seemed to be just an, I almost went back to what I think I always was. But I think I'm unique that way because I could have my wife on the show and she's totally different. She still keeps the uniform in her closet. And, you know, as if one day someone's going to come and say, we need you back on active duty. She still got her dress blues in there. So I think some people better than others. But ironically, you know, I don't know what Army boot camp is. It's like, what, two weeks, isn't it? Um, it was eight weeks. Yeah, I'm just um, messing course, with you. Uh, yeah. I think that's Air Force boot camp is two weeks, like a two weekends, two four-day weekends. Yeah. But think about this. So, so you take a person, whatever length of time it is. I think Marine Corps 13, Navy was eight or nine. I can't remember. But so, and then on top of that, and that is indoctrination for somebody who's not experienced it, there is no window to the outside. I mean, I think shock people who are listening uh, my UPS guy's son just went off to Marine Corps boot camp. And yeah, they were without phones for two weeks before in quarantine and then the full 13 weeks of boot camp. So imagine not having your phone mm -hmm. and you're completely open to embrace this new lifestyle. And then on top of that, like you said, Dwayne, you go and you do a tour, whether it's four years or 22 years, and then there's no boot camp from military to civilian. Exactly. You, exactly. you might go through the TAP program or ACAP or SFL, whatever they call it these days. And that little three day or five day is like, okay, this is your little mini boot camp to go out and, you know, do us proud when you leave. And unfortunately, it's very, and, and I think it's very similar to if you watch Shawshank Redemption, right? You take an old guy like yep. Red or uh, Brooks and they've been in prison their whole life and you just give them a suit and then say, go on and have a great life and they don't know how to do it. Dwayne, is, is that the kind of person that seeks you out for help? Um, you know, it's some, uh, I think. Um, and, and I think that in, in right now there's an emerging uh, concept called transition stress. And transition stress is the challenges that, that we face once we leave the military um, that, that aren't necessarily clinical, right? You know, so we have the medical model of, of, uh, uh military and veteran mental health. So these are things like post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, substance use, uh, depression, anxiety, emotional concerns, right? Those all have diagnoses. I, as a mental health professional can charge insurance for those things, right? Uh, the VA, um, you know, has, has, you know, disability for those things. There's medications for each of them. So that's one of the, there's an illness, you get treatment, you get a cure. So that's the medical model of, of mental health. Um, and so a lot of the, the clients that I see as a mental health professional are, are in, are, are experiencing one of those things or, or a mixture of all of them. Um, uh, but then there's some non-clinical concerns. So things like, um, a, a measure of finding purpose and meaning in our life, right? So, um, having as much satisfaction in what we do after the military that we did when we were in the military. Um, there's an emerging concept called moral injury. I feel guilty about things that I did or things that I saw, um, just being able to get my needs met, right? You know, when I, when I left the military, um, you know, I had my military retirement and, and we were in a house and everything was, was good. Um, but, uh, I'd had one tie my entire military career and I only knew how to tie it one way. Um, uh, just learning how to tie a tie a different way, learning how to, to, you know, my first interview, 
um, was uh, with a, a nonprofit. Uh, the previous interview before that was with the pizza place that I worked with when I was 18 years old. So I hadn't, so all of these different getting my needs met. And here we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. How do I meet my 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 basic uh, safety and security needs and, and biological needs? Well, the military did that for you. Um, the military gives you a house to, to live in or a barracks room or something like that. You never, never had to negotiate a rental contract, right? So not being able to get your needs met. And then finally, relationships um, are, are mental health impacts our relationships, our relationships impact our mental health. There's no pill um, to have a better relationship with your spouse. My wife maybe wishes there was one, um, but but there's no medication to be able to do that. There's no medication um, that can help you feel more fulfilled, right? So really there's these two sides. There's the medical model of mental health that we need to address. So there are definitely these psychological conditions, but then there's the, some things that are unique to the military and perhaps first responders like that purpose and meaning, moral injury and needs fulfillment. Um, and so I think we see a wide range uh, for all of those needs. Well, for organizations who've made a commitment to hire veterans now, I mean, I guess, you know, like anything else, people make stereotypes of things. We've made stereotypes of millennials eating avocado toast. We've made stereotypes of Generation Z being entitled and on their phones all the time. What are some of the stereotypes people have of veterans that may or may not be true. You know, I think that's a great question. And, and really, um, I and, and others have really sort of broke it down into three sort of mindsets. So uh, first you have the villain, right? So you have John Rambo, who's going to go crazy and shoot up the town. And, and you know, uh, um, this is somebody to fear, right? Somebody who is unstable and, and a, you know, PTSD riddled maniac, right? So that's one idea that people have, one stereotype. Uh, the other is really uh, the victim mindset is, oh, you poor veterans, right? You're a you're a wounded bird or a three-legged dog, and I, I must pity you, and I feel sorry for you, and, and oh my God, it must have been so hard for you to go through that. I can't even imagine. I'm so sorry. Like, you know, they did that. So that's the the pity that comes along with the, the victim mindset. Um, and then there's the hero of, you know, everybody thinks that the veteran is this, you know, um, you know, Captain America or Miss Marvel striding across the battlefield, saving the world, right? And and so we we have, so you have the hero worship, you have pity, uh, and then you have really sort of disgust and disdain based on those stereotypes. And none of us are, are really any of them, and maybe we can be all of them at different points. Um, but this is the challenge with stereotypes. If you start to treat someone um, in a stereotypical way, um, you may either you you may induce what you're anticipating their stereotype to be. Um, I have a colleague who was a Green Beret who was working in tech, and uh, he described one time that his uh, uh, some coworkers and he was frustrated another coworker, uh, and he was like, "Well, I'm just going to kill him with kindness," and he walked out. Well, he found out later that there was a 20 minute conversation after he left about whether he was making a threat. Just because wow. they knew he was a, a, a Green Beret, where he was just making an offhand comment. But, oh, do you think he really is? is should we report that to somebody? Is that going to be right? That's sort of that response to that, that fear, that villain mindset that, that um, you know, veterans are unstable in some way. Um, and, and a lot of it is because there's no familiarity. There's no, there's no understanding of, um, of really what it is um, in, in, getting to understand who people are individually, if, just like any other stereotype, that's the way to overcome things. Yeah. My big concern, I guess, is that, you know, veterans coming out of from all branches, 
you know, they know they've got to find a job. I mean, I, I've heard, I used to hear when I used to teach those tap workshops, oh, you know, I may work a, a real job for a couple of years and I'm going to retire, retire. And I thought, really, you're going to be 40 and retire, retire? Yeah, I didn't believe that for a second. But I think, you know, most people realize, okay, I've got to have a second career. It's the Maslow, you know, basic human needs that suddenly I don't have. My wife went through it. I went through it. I thought, my gosh, you know, I mean, I was about ready to go. There was a little hotel in Millington, Tennessee. And I thought, I guess I better go. They're looking for people to clean rooms, but I don't have a job. And I'm waiting for this first job for the hiring manager to make a decision. And I'm terrified. Same thing with my wife. She had the ultimate post-military job. They converted her military job to a GS-14 and she leaves on Friday and comes back on Monday. Same job, no uniform. I mean, the easiest, but it didn't take but four or five months. And she's like, you know, I never really liked this job. Right. And now I'm kind of stuck. And I, I don't have the the thing that she loved the most was being in uniform. Exactly. I mean, I, I swear we go to Campbell on a weekend, you know, and we go through the front gate, they take my card and scan it. They take Barb's card. The guy stands tall and salutes and she loves it. It's like, yay, I'm back to what I love to be. She's, I don't think she's ever fully transitioned. And I guess my concern is, you know, for the veteran coming out, did they have to totally renounce their old life to get a new one? Or is there some balance in there somewhere? Well, I think there's always necessarily going to be balance, right? So again, if we're talking about culture, um, and again, the military is a culture just like any other culture. It's a, it's a group culture rather than sort of a racial and ethnic or geographic culture. Um, but again, everything that defines a culture is what we do. So cultural characteristics have both extrinsic and, and intrinsic um, indicators. So the extrinsic indicator of culture for the military was the uniform, right? It was standing at attention. It was being saluted. It was, you know, waking up and doing, you know, PT and, and, and all of the different things that made one obviously a service member. Those are the extrinsic examples of military service. Once you leave the service, those for many people, those extrinsic service, those extrinsic indicators go away. Um, the, um, the intrinsic values, right? The intrinsic indicators of military service don't go away. Um, and those are carried over into post-military life. And I think for many of us, I describe the transition from military to sort of full transition post-military is this tunnel, right? There's this tunnel um, that we all have to go through. Uh, the tunnel may be short and easy to navigate like it was for you um, because, you know, it, it was a pretty quick transition. But for many, the tunnel may be very long. It may be full with obstacles. And, and I describe some veterans will go to that beginning of that tunnel, sit down, turn around and look back at the military and think, man, I, I wish I was back there. Um, and they really don't make a shift. And this goes back to, again, this mindset change, uh, Prochaska and DiClemente stages of change model. Um, they haven't made the, the, the mindset shift. They haven't gone through the pre-contemplation, contemplation action stage to actually change the way that they think to say, the military is something that I used to do. It's not something that defines me entirely. Um, and then I can climb out of that tunnel and move on to my post-military life. Wow. But what resources are given to people because I don't remember teaching any of that stuff in TAP, nor do I remember anybody being saying you could go there. I mean, where would a person go who's leaving active duty now if they happen to be tuning in 
and we'll just take army because that's your what you're most familiar with. I mean, is there somewhere they can go or should they just get out and figure it out when they're out? Well, I guess, again, that's what been, people have been doing for decades. Um, I, I, I think one of the challenges and, and you have, um, like you said, you've you've uh, taught some of these tap transition courses. Um, transition support out of the military is very transactional. It's not transformational. Right. Um, it's transactional in the sense of give me your experience and I'll return you a resume. Show me what you're wearing and I'll teach you how to dress for success. Right. Tell me how you interview and I will teach you something different. Right. So it's this very transactional. But if we go back to indoctrination into the military, it was transformational. Yes, we did all those transactional things, but they changed the way that we thought, the way that we acted, the way that we behaved. And there isn't a transformational, either psychological or even behavioral transformation out of the military. Um, and I think a lot of service members, some don't need that, like you said yourself. And, and I've met others that the transition transition was really smooth. Um, but for others, it's it's really up to us individually, one, to realize that we need to make that transition. And then two, to actually um, make that step, make that transition. Um, and I think that's really where um, a, a lot of organizations these days are trying to help individuals satisfy some of those needs, right? You know, um, re reclaim some of their, their sense of satisfaction leaving the military. That's why things like Team Rubicon and Team RWB and the mission continues, um, that these are organizations, nonprofits that help veterans find another mission after their, um, after their military career. Uh, but again, that tunnel I was talking about, it can last for decades, right? So the VFW and the American Legion, yes, really still very much uh, stronger in the older generation. But those are the same things as those organizations, um, you know, that will help veterans connect to their roots, but also um, sort of change that mindset from I'm no longer a service member to now I'm this this veteran thing. So for the active duty soldier, sailor, airman, Marine, who might be listening to this today, that might be about three years out from transition. So someone who's thinking I'll do, you know, five years and get out, or let's say somebody who's at the 17 year mark right now, or the 16 year mark, and they're going to retire at 20. I don't know if you can do that anymore. I think they changed the retirement plan, but either way, that's about the age you've got to be moving on. What would you recommend for them to start doing now in preparation, just beyond the things that everybody says, the networking and all that other stuff, you know, buy you a suit and all those things. I'm more interested in what the mind ought to be doing to prepare for transition. What would you recommend? Come to terms with the fact that sometime soon you're not going to be in the military anymore. Because you talk like, and uh, in, in here's an example. I was, uh, when I was in 10th group, I was going to visit a, a colleague of mine, a, a fellow first sergeant. We walked into her orderly room there uh, and all of her, her soldiers were there. And she turned and, and saw one of this gentleman who was an E6, a staff sergeant. And she was like, dude, go home. And I'm like, what's that about? And, she, and this was on a Monday. And she was like, he retires on Friday. There's wow. no reason why. She was like, his wife has already, like his wife has left him and he doesn't know it. Right. His wife has moved back home. Um, I'm, I've taken every single thing from him. He's not allowed to do any work here. I've told him he doesn't need to come. And yet every day he's still sitting here in uniform because he hasn't made that. He hasn't. And she was concerned because she's like, he's going to struggle when he gets out because he's so tightly held to this. So I'm not saying stop showing up to work. That's not what, yeah. I'm, <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, but get it in your mind that you're going to be out of the military someday. Start that mindset shift. Um, I, I always describe it as a, a, wall, a wall of fog, right? We had this wall of fog at the end of our military career. 
Um, I had actually started going to school in 2007 and didn't retire in 2014. So arguably my consideration of what I was going to do when I retired started a full seven years before um, I actually retired. And it was still scary as hell for me, right? Um, and, and even when I retired, as I started, made that decision to retire, um, I'm going to decide to put in my paperwork, putting my paperwork, doing all that last retirement year stuff. I still had 14 months to get my mindset. And it was still very, very strange for me to not be in the military after having been in so long. So that's the first thing is start to realize that you're going to be out of the military. Start to contemplate what your life is going to be like and maybe it's going to be good, right? Maybe you love the fact that you're not going to have to wake up at four o'clock every morning. That's great. But start to think about what would life be like if I'm not in the military anymore? What do I want to do? What do I want to be? Um, the military leaves a huge space in our life, right? It leaves a very large hole. It goes back to your conversation about people wanting to retire at 40. Um, the idea of retirement and having a lot of free time on your hands sounds great, but in actuality for veterans, probably not going to happen, right? Because <laughs> because we're so used to being so, so busy. And so what is my life going to be like? What do I want to do? What do I want to be? Realize that I need to find something in my life that gives me as much satisfaction there that I have here. Even though we, there were moments that we hated in the military, absolutely. Um, but by and large, most of the service members I know were really involved and dedicated to what they were doing. Um, and so I think that's really it is start to consider what your life is going to be like after the military and start to think about what you're going to do, because you can network all day long. But if if it's an academic exercise and you're really not feeling like eh, I'm probably I may reenlist and I may stay in or whatever, you're not going to to really engage in it as much as you really should. Well, we've kind of built the case that men and women who have served in the military, they they bring something from their experience. We've seen the dark side of what might happen. We've also seen the stereotypes that people may have. So what is in it for an organization that is interested in making a commitment to hire veterans? Why should they bother? Or is this just, too, is it not worth the effort? Well, I mean, I, I absolutely think it's worth the effort. I mean, it's something that can be beneficial for both the um, the, the the service member, the veteran themselves, but also the organization uh, is one, you have an individual who, if they believe in your culture, if they believe in your mission, man, they are the most loyal, they're the most bought in individuals. So if you want, um, you know, ambassadors and bachelors and champions, uh, you know, of, of, of the, the effort, um, then absolutely a veteran is one because loyalty is what we do, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it's sort of like when we love, we love bigly, right? So this well, we're willing to die for it. Exactly. At least what we used to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's one of that intrinsic values that, uh, that we will carry over. So, um, definitely when we, in, in, when we join a company, you know, enlist in a company, when you join an organization, um, if, if it has a mission that speaks to us, then we will do a lot to be able to do that. Right. So yes, there's the things about discipline and things about showing up on time and stuff like that. And those are sort of the standard things that come along being in the military. Um, but the other thing, um, is really, we're problem solvers, right? In the military, we had to 
um, do a lot with very few resources, either personnel, materials, or funds, or whatever, right? But you had to get the job done. Um, that's one of the things that I think that I have experienced most of my post-military career is uh, see a problem and find a, an interesting and, and, and uh, innovative way to get around that problem, right? So you have somebody that's coming into your your industry, let's say, um, that has a passion, that's a problem solver, but they also have a unique perspective, right? They they have a different way of looking at that. They're not indoctrinated. They, they didn't grow up in sort of the sales uh, a funnel or, or something like that. And, and so they have, um, it's, it's a diversity of vision, a diversity of viewpoint, um, in, in a diversity of viewpoint in people that can be very, very loyal and who really want to do some really good work. And so hard work, loyalty, and problem solving, I think in my experience is something that, that veterans bring to just about any occupation that they choose to do. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, just learned on the job. Mm -hmm. So uh, very beneficial. Well, the last question I have for you, Dwayne, then is when an employer is making this commitment, what advice would you have for them in terms of recruiting, selection, onboarding and training for a veteran? I, I think that uh, for many um, HR professionals, um, have some understanding about military culture and mindset, you know, whether that's already veterans in your organization, um, uh, that, uh, you know, they're, they're not in the HR pipeline or anything like that. Um, but if, if an organization is large enough and you don't have a military and veteran employee resource group, um, then, then institute one. And if you do have an ERG, then, then have them come in and support you, right? If you don't have military and veteran background yourself, um, have some people say, you know, how would someone who just got out of the military see this process? What are, what are some different ways that we can do that? One example, um, and, and here's something that, that um, for uh, mental health, for example, is, you know, we do uh, mental health assessments, right? You know, how do you feel today? Well, especially current era veterans, we've been tested nine ways to Sunday. We know how to answer those things, right? To make it, to, to not go see the wizard and not be given the purple folder and go sent to the other room, right? So it's, it's understanding how um, someone who is, is a service member and veteran may see your, your intake and your training process in a different way, right? How they may see this and experience this in a different way. Um, and, and you may not necessarily need to tailor it, but you may be able to help them under, you know, uh, uh, understand that their expert expectations of the process may be different, uh, in, in the mental health field, but also generally we call this cultural competence. And there's been a lot of discussion absolutely as there should have been, um, in sort of a greater cultural awareness and, and um, re reactivity and sensitivity towards the needs of other cultures. Um, and cultural competence, uh, a lot of people think that if they have cultural knowledge, as in I went to go see American Sniper or I saw all the Rambo's movies, right? That's cultural knowledge. And that's, that's actually distorted cultural knowledge. But this cult, having cultural knowledge is not the same thing as being able to be competent in reacting with that culture. So if you're really looking to build a military and veteran hiring program or training program, um, and you have no military background yourself, um, take some time to learn more about the military culture beyond just the stereotypes, but understanding that, um, you know, what you need to do. And, and it may be different, right? You, if you're in San Diego and you're listening to this, you really need to understand Navy and Marine Corps culture. Um, if you're in, uh, Colorado Springs, for example, you need to understand army and air force culture, right? So it can really be 
sort of a, a you know diving into certain types of culture. But I think it's really just like anything. If you want to hire someone who is culturally diverse in order to broaden your company, um, you need to understand what that culture is like and, and take the time to be able to learn those things. I think very wise. Well, if uh, people are listening today, Dwayne, and they're thinking, boy, I really want to move forward, but I'd like to continue the conversation or find out more about what you do, what's the best way for us to reach out to you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I'm a I'm a big guy, both in real life and online, so it doesn't take uh, much to to find me uh, as long as you spell my name correctly. Uh, but generally, um, everything that I do is is found on VeteranMentalHealth.com. Uh, that's a, a I do a series of of blogs and podcasts. A lot of this to help educate people about military and veteran mental health. Uh, currently producing two podcasts at this time. Uh, one for an organization called Psych Armor, um, which is one that provides education to organizations that want to support veterans, uh, and another one called Inside the Military Mind, which is really locally based, but it's helping individuals understand more about military veteran culture. So VeteranMentalHealth.com is pretty much the location where you can find everything. Uh, there's books, there's podcasts. Uh, I don't sing and dance, but uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I might if, if, uh, if the right request comes along. And if it helps somebody out, huh? Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> Very good. Well, Dwayne, hey, I've really enjoyed this. It's It's been fun taking a little walk back down through memory lane. Uh, but uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, I guess when they say soldier for life, I guess you sort of took that one seriously, didn't you? Uh, I do. And and I think a lot of people do, right? I mean, this is the the military. Um, and, and I think one of the things um, is, is to understand that even if it's not a fully a part of your culture, um, having once been in the military, you're always going to be in the military, right? And, and always have been in the military. So that idea of being a veteran, whether you so closely ide- identify with that or not, it's still going to be a part of who you are. Um, but, uh, but yes, I, I think that there's, I'm going to be retired twice as long as, as I was when I was in the military. Um, for some service members, they're going to be out of the military four, five, six times longer than they were in. But that time when they were in was so influential, it was so um, impactful um, that it's going to um, be a part of their identity for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Well, Dwayne, thanks again for taking time to share with us today. And uh, best of luck as you keep pushing on on this really, really important journey. Absolutely. And thank you for what you're doing. Great stuff. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.